This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. All right. Brothers and sisters, we are, would you believe, halfway through. Acts has 28 chapters and we have managed to do 14 of them. So, you know, it gets faster from here apparently. But before we begin, we will do the time-honored Christian tradition where when we do anything uh, in the name of the Lord, we first pray. Um, not that God needs our prayers, but it is very good for us to acknowledge His presence and to prepare our hearts for uh, the study of His Word. Can I have a volunteer to lead us in prayer? Yeah, anyone want to pray for us? Lord, you said where two or more gathered, there you are in the midst. And we gather in your name to learn of you. So, Father, I ask in Yeshua's name that you would send your Holy Spirit to teach, to lead us and guide us into all truth. And we'll give you all the glory and honor. And we thank you, Yeshua, for who you are and all that you did at Calvary. Amen. That we could look into your word and get to know you, the Son of the Most Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So today's section of Acts of the Holy Spirit will be Acts 15. But before we do, we will go over the last bit of, or the half of uh, Acts 14 that we studied last week. So to refresh ourselves, <clears throat> much of the journey, and this is the uh, commissioning from Antioch out by, by, uh, by the Holy Spirit through uh, Barnabas and Saul. Much of the journey has been a mixture of successful preaching, followed by opposition concentration, and then flight to another destination. From the synagogues of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, Paul and Barnabas begin public discourse, public open discourse in the forums of Lystra and Derby, where apparently the Jewish community was not well represented and had no synagogues. So we go from going into synagogues, where it's, it's exactly what happens uh, in the text, to Lystra and Derby, where there's no mention of any synagogues uh, uh, at all, or even of a Jewish community. We are not given any details as to Paul's message, which we actually have had in the past. Whenever he's done a big speech, we get it. Now suddenly we get nothing. It's very silent. We assume the message would be slightly different to a synagogue audience than to a pagan Gentile community. And we discussed some of the ideas of what that might be, what that might look like. Although, of course, whenever the text doesn't say anything, anything we add to it is pure assumption and is, is, is nothing more, more than that. Paul has an encounter with a lame man and we get the detail of his first display of miraculous power. Although... It has been said that Paul and Barnabas did miracles. This is the first time you actually have a detailed miracle of Paul actually doing something. And an unnamed Gentile man mentioned three times as being unable to walk. So that was very significant. Is noticed by Paul who somehow sees the man's faith. In particular, the faith to be healed. So we had a small discussion on what sort of faith can actually be seen by others. And sort of those, that, that beautiful phrase that Paul looked at him and he saw that he had the faith to be healed. Well, what did he see? And what does it mean to have that faith that can actually be seen by others? 
especially with somebody who is potentially a pagan and had only been hearing Paul who knows how long but uh, uh, believe the result of the encounter ends with faith in action as the man jumps up and walks so once again faith always leads to an action in this case walking the miracle does not have the desired effect which is to promote and confirm the message of God, as it did in Acts 14, verse 3, where uh, Paul and Barnabas preach. And then it says, The Lord did miracles to confirm the message. Here, you have a miracle. We don't know what message it was that it's trying to confirm, but it certainly doesn't do that. It does the complete opposite. Instead, Paul and Barnabas are perceived as the gods Hermes and Zeus in human form. Why does uh, this conclusion from the people happen in Lystra and not in another location? Local legend from the Latin poet Ovid described a visit by Zeus and Hermes to the region. However, they could find no hospitality except from an elderly couple, so they brought wrath down on the city. Stage set for mistaken identity. Paul and Barnabas attempt to dissuade the crowd and the local priests from making a sacrifice on their behalf. In doing so, they present God as the creator of the world. No mention of sacred redemptive history, which seems to be the message for Jewish audiences. Okay? So up until this point, whenever we're talking in synagogues, whenever we have a detailed speech, it is a, a speech of redemption history. God has done the following things, and now we get Messiah. Gentiles receive the natural revelation message with no mention of the Messiah. Okay? God is the creator, but there's no Jesus. There's no requirement for a blood sacrifice. It's just, you know, you've, you've, you should know this by now, that uh, there's, a, there's a creator out there. So what does this say about the modern context for sharing the gospel? If our, m most of our world is actually pagan and has no knowledge about God, what, is, what do we see our heroes doing in Acts? What's their message? God is creation. Genesis. They start with Genesis. And that's exactly what happened to the guys next door. Right? The Armenians. Their, their faith tradition, their story about how they, as a nation, embraced Christianity was a bunch of missionaries came from Jerusalem, went to, their, went to their country and said, got a great story for you. In the beginning, there was a guy called God. God uh, made the world. world goes bad. Then there's a boat and a rainbow. And you know, the king of Armenia goes, yes, we know that story because the boat's sitting on top of that hill. Okay? And so they embrace the faith. We haven't talked about Jesus. We haven't said you need a blood sacrifice. We haven't talked about personal sin. But uh, that's the message. And maybe that as we look at sacred history and we look at today's modern history, it might be we need to go back to that kind of a model. We need to first convince people that there's a God, that God actually made the world, and that this loving God has actually impacted the world uh, with, with himself. It's part of it, though, because of evolution. Yes. It's just been disproved. <laughs> Which is just been disproved. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've been watching a few uh, YouTube videos on that discussion. Yes. And uh, some very, very smart people are now saying Darwin is dead. We need to come up with a new solution. Yeah. Um, uh, actually, a Jewish guy called David. Berlinski, who wrote a book called The Devil's Delusion, and uh, an actual Christian guy called Stephen Meyer, um, and then some guy from Yale, who, who's a 
staunch atheist, like cannot believe in anything to do with God, but he just says it's mathematically impossible. He says everything, everything that we say is just it's not, not possible. So do you believe in God? No. Nope. But it's mathematically impossible. <laughs> yeah, there's a beginning. Yeah. Sorry? There's a beginning. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but they refuse to say how the beginning got there. Yeah, which is, which is, yeah. But it's very interesting that these very smart people talk about it in very, uh, very um, uh, high language. You sort of sit there and go, I don't really understand too much of what you just said, but it sounded pretty good. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a lot of fun. All right. So, um, so it, it's interesting to, to find our heroes uh, doing this interesting pattern of one, once they got a Gentile audience to talk about uh, nature, to talk about God as an as a intervening force. Okay, so Antioch and Iconium are approximately 100 miles away from Lystra, which is a four-day journey. Okay, yet the Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrive to oppose Paul. Why did they do this? Perhaps this reveals that the local communities are small and without any strong local leadership possible. Okay, perhaps it really is that the, the people in Iconium and Antioch just hate Paul, but we don't know. Why would you chase him this far? Lacking any detail... Uh, they succeed in stirring the Gentiles to allow them to stone Paul. How they manage to do this, we have no idea. Okay, Because this is a capital punishment. How did these guys manage to convince the locals to enact capital punishment? We have no idea. Again, remember what the book of Acts is. As we've been going through our little, little bit of a study, the book of Acts is not a history of the church. It is sacred history, but it certainly is lacking large swaths of detail. Um, however, Paul survives the experience. There is no mention of this actually being a miraculous salvation or healing. We have no idea how he survived. The text just says, you know, they all gather around him and then he gets up. And it doesn't say he was healed. doesn't say they didn't really do a good job. They only threw pebbles. Um, none of those things. It just they tried to stone him. They thought he was dead. He gets up and walks. So they're off to Derby. Derby receives only one sentence to describe what the occurrences there, which were successful. It's like, wow, good, you have success. But then there's just only one sentence that actually tells you their little um, story there. Paul and Barnabas then retrace their steps as they return to Antioch. And this includes visiting Iconium, home to the Jews who stoned Paul. Right? So isn't that interesting? So they show up in the place where they had been chased uh, and stoned, and yet we have no, no idea of what actually happened. But you could imagine the, 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 um, the scenario. He comes in, knocks on the door. Hey guys, how you doing? <laughs> that hurt. And I'm here to tell you I, I forgive you. <laughs> no idea what, what happened or, or whether the leaders try again or any of that kind of stuff. Okay? Um, they strengthen the disciples, with, although without any indication of how they do this. Yeah, this is one of those infuriating passages where they strengthen the disciples. Could you please tell me how you did this? Was it with energy drinks? Was it with group hugs? Was it with you know, occupational therapy? What did you do to strengthen the church? What does even that word mean? Okay, leadership of each community is elected. Okay. Or there are no mandates or qualifications listed as to how, who, or why leadership is selected. So you just get this story, they chose some leaders. Okay, so we've got some new leadership. But it, it, it doesn't tell us by which 
which way they did this. So we had a little discussion about what we thought could, uh, could be um, some potentials. If you were going to choose leaders of your new fledgling communities, who would you choose? Who, what would you choose? Somebody who's respected, somebody who could read, although we don't actually have a Bible. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, but all this we find later in Timothy and Titus. Um, and we could probably maybe superimpose that back here and say this is the pattern of the type of people that I was choosing. But this early community doesn't really have a lot, does it? It's, um, it's certainly lacking a Bible. It's certainly lacking anybody who's theologically trained. It's certainly lacking the gospel itself. Um, so what exactly are they teaching? We have no idea. Right? We have no clue. And that's very interesting is that while people say, oh, I'm reading the book of Acts, the history of the church. Well, it's a history, but it's not really going to tell you much about the church. We have no clue what this early movement looked like. We don't know what they did. We don't know what they were reading. We don't know what their pastors were like. We don't know what their sermons were like. Uh, we don't know whether they built hospitals and schools and went out and changed the world. We have no clue. We do know that they end up getting an epistle written to them very quickly. Okay, Galatians. This is where we're all hanging around Galatia here. We're forming the churches of Galatia. And they end up with some issues. Okay, the, the whole Jewish-Gentile issue, which is about to hit in, uh, in this, this passage itself. All right. Um, so, however, out of, out of any, all of this selection of how we choose leaders, prayer and fasting are included in the process. And that's, you know, my brother's favorite topic. Okay, that once we start praying, we stop eating. Okay. <laughs> but somehow those two things um, go together in the, in the early, early church, which almost never is, is in, in our current uh, way we do things. Like, um, it's, it's just one of those things that... Uh, uh, you know, we all go to Bible, everyone's at a Bible study and we're all drinking and eating. Okay, so it's... Churches out, let's eat. Okay. And that churches out, let's eat. Yes, and they, that's what they do. And they all they flood to the shops. You know, and for, for the podcast, we're all sitting around drinking green tea right now and um, not fasting at all. Okay. But the early church, that is one of the things that is mentioned time and time again, is their attitude of prayer and fasting. Eventually, the journey ends where it began. Uh, reporting to the community which had sent them out under the inspiration and voice of the Spirit. Okay, remember that? That at the beginning of chapter uh, 13, the Holy Spirit had been speaking to their community and had, uh, uh, the community had embraced uh, this voice and had sent them out. Uh, and so now, in particular reference is made to the Gentiles who've been coming to faith in the Messiah. That's one of the big things that they report in. Paul and Barnabas had formerly been part of the leadership of the mixed community in Antioch, and we assume that they resumed these positions. Right? So they were, they were the leadership. Remember where the community had been founded? How did the community in Antioch get started? By guys from Libya. Unnamed apostles, unnamed, unnamed disciples. We are not told their name, but they start the community. Barnabas goes there to see what's going on. He strengthens the believers again, mysteriously, not told how he did it. Sorry? This unknown person? We have no clue. They're from, they're from Cyrene, which is Libya, Libya and Cyprus. So then Barnabas goes and grabs Saul from Tarsus, and then the two of them shepherd the community for over a year, and then 
by the time the next chapter comes on, there are a few more uh, uh, leaders named, okay, which is interesting. And, uh, and, and, and so now Saul and Barnabas retake their positions, I guess, of leadership. And we've just had an entire chapter of no mention of the Holy Spirit, which is an interesting absence in the effect, who sent them out? The Holy Spirit. Right? And yet we have no, no mention of him actually doing anything. anything. All miracles are attributed to the Lord, right? uh, which is an interesting way, because in some other chapters it's, it's the, the Spirit doing something, or the Holy Spirit comes and does something. Okay, he's mentioned in Acts 13 as filling the disciples, but uh, that's all he gets. So Acts 14 has nothing of, a, of the Holy Spirit, and now we're back. We, we, we certainly assume so. Okay, we certainly assume, but in terms of the record of sacred history, he's not a, a figure. He's not a, nothing's attributed to him. Um, like when someone has success, in the previous chapters, they'll say, the Lord granted them success. But here, nothing was attributed to the Holy Spirit as having done anything. For whatever reason. And we have no clue why. But we do assume he's there. But of this entire journey, you know, um, he's not mentioned. Now, that is not the way we talk today. Every missionary who gets sent out talks about the Holy Spirit all the time about what the Holy Spirit's doing, or how God's talking to them, all the success stories that they've done. You would think that if you were going to have a good report about your little missionary journey, you might want to mention the dude that first sent you out. Okay? But we don't do it. Can't tell you why. Okay? Just one of those pieces of recorded history. Okay. I so. the Jewish writers, and they didn't talk about the Holy Spirit in that way. It was the voice of the Father. And that his spirit was working anyway. We, 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 and we, 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 I agree with you onto a point in the effect that, A, yes, in the, that the, the, the Jewish people would like to talk about the Father the most. However, in the Second Temple period, we are talking about the Shekinah a lot by this stage yeah. and the term the Holy Spirit. Plus, the book of Acts mentions the Holy Spirit more than any other book of the Bible. So one would assume that if he's the major topic, uh, he would at least show up in some of these missionary journeys, but he does not. And that's one of the reasons why when we've been studying this text, we've been paying attention to when he shows up, what he actually is attributed to, and, and then also noticing his absence, which is just as important as when he's there. Right? Because often, or not often, but in some cases, those of us who are believers, who don't have a visitation of the Holy Spirit, who don't have a miracle, who don't have a voice from heaven, might feel inadequate. But then Acts 14 ain't got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And they had lots of success. So I think we need to be very careful when we try and attribute A too much or too little. So we just have to be very careful when when dealing or with the, with, with the Holy Spirit, particularly in terms of uh, trying to tell, tell him how he, how he behaves. Okay, so now we're having a look at that famous chapter, Acts 15. And you might wonder, why is this one still here? Because I thought we had dealt with this 
in Acts chapter 11. However, it has resurfaced. So everyone remember what happened in Acts chapter 11? Fair enough. Okay, in Acts chapter 10, that's actually the watershed moment. That's the bit where um, Peter goes and visits Cornelius. That's the first time that you ever have a Jew entering a Gentile house. In fact, that's what he's summoned to Jerusalem for. When they bring him to Jerusalem, their question isn't, hey, I heard you gave the gospel to Gentiles and, uh, and the Holy Spirit came. Tell us about that event. What they say is, is it true? Did you go inside a Gentile house and eat their fruit? That's the question. It's like, oh my gosh, Peter, you're like one of the apostles. You are hanging around Jesus. What would you possibly have done this for? Well, after their discussion, and Peter gives their, 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 um, his version of the events, and he says they received the Holy Spirit just like us, then James has already made a decree. Sounds good. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. You think, great. But then this still happens. Yeah. So the problem did not go away. Okay? It just went down for a little bit, and now it's back. And after 2,000 years, she ain't gone away. Okay? So let's study it and see why this is such a big issue, both in the past and today. So let's all remember, everybody in this chapter is a believer. Everybody in this chapter is full of the Holy Spirit. Some of them are apostles. And they are on both sides of the debate. Everyone's been with Jesus, who's an apostle. What is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Oh, uh, what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Uh, do you mean the 12 apostles or anybody called an apostle? Well, as mentioned in here. As mentioned in the text. Okay. Uh, well, obviously, the, the initial 12 are apostles. And, uh, and then Paul and Barnabas are also called apostles. However, by this stage, the word apostle in Hebrew would be shaliach, sent one, which would be anybody, actually. Anybody who's an emissary would be called an apostle. Yet, there seems to be this special grouping of the original 12. Okay, now minus one with the addition of a guy who came about after doing some gambling. Okay. I'll come back to that one. Okay. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. How do we choose new leadership? Pick a card. Any card. It's what, okay. And, uh, and that's how we get that's a get a... Oh, okay. But a, but a disciple is, is in Hebrew. What's the, the word for disciple in Hebrew? Talmud. And in Hebrew, an apostle would be a shaliach. And those are two different words. Very different words. One is a sent one. One is a student. So while you both might, both might be... You could be both at the same time. Usually, usually it's one. Usually you're the student, and then at some point you have become a sent one. Anyway, okay, yeah. All right, so let's read uh, Acts 15. It's a big chapter, but let's just try the first 21 verses and see how far we get. Okay? All right, everybody ready? Okay. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to, up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Syria, 
they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the community and the emissaries and the elders. They reported all that God had done in helping them. Some believers who belonged to the Pharisees Pharisees rose up and said, it was necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The emissaries and the elders met uh, to look into this matter. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and God who knows down showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did at us. He did not, did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets agree as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, that is, all the Goyim who have been called by one name. Things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should try to them, tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses had been preached in every city for from the earliest times, and is read in the sign of Okay, so you've all read this passage before, I know you have. So anything there that you've, uh, you've noticed anew, afresh, or you always notice, or you never noticed it before? Yes, it's interesting, yeah, to note that, uh, yep, Pharisees have become believers in Jesus, many of them, and then they kind of stick together. Yep, they remain Pharisees, which is interesting, okay? They don't decide to change something else. In the uh, verse uh, 10, it talks about the yoke. Yep. Now, other parts of the Old Testament, and with Jewish thinking, the yoke is not a hardship. Correct. It's a, not a burden. Whereas here, it seems to say it's a burden. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. Yep. Yep. And so here we've got to remember 
this is not a Christian text. This is a Jewish text. See, the Jews talking about the yoke as a burden. And why would they be talking about such a thing? When many, many rabbis will talk about the Torah as freedom. There's, a, there's a, a debate within rabbinical circles, as it always is, is about um, can Gentiles actually carry the burden? And some will say, yes, of course, right? And uh, they'll accept proselytes and they'll start teaching them the small commandments and some heavier ones and things. But then there'll be other rabbis who'll say, no, nope, and they'll give this incredible parable. Uh, they'll say that there was a, a, a man and he had uh, two animals. He had a donkey and he had a dog. And he put, um, and he had ten, 10 measures of weight. He put eight measures on the on the donkey and two measures on the on the dog. And uh, as they're walking along, the dog's panting, <laughs> and it's like so he's like, oh, that's not not good. So he takes one measure off the dog and puts the on the donkey, and he keeps walking. Dog's still panting, <laughs> and the rabbi looks at the dog and says, "What's your problem? It doesn't matter what I do. You're always panting. You know whether you've got a waiter or not. You obviously can cannot carry it. You're just like a gentile. Okay? Can't bear anything, right? So there's a there's a there's a blend. There's always a, there's always two sides to the argument, which is exactly what you see here, don't you? Remember, everyone in this chapter is a believer in Jesus." Some of them were there on the day of Pentecost. So they had tongues of fire sitting on top of their heads. They ran around saying things in multiple languages. And here they are saying, got to put the Torah on some, on some goys. Interesting, when do we come up with that idea? And, uh, and so we have to be very careful when we want to point fingers. Because um, these are solid believers in Jesus. And, uh, and they think they're right. Okay, so let's, let's have a look at, uh, at the text. Okay, so. <clears throat> some men come down from Judea to Antioch and they start teaching the brothers. And right? uh, so why would they come down from Antioch or to Antioch? Why would they do such a thing? And do you, it's interesting the phrase, don't you think? Where's Antioch in relation to, to uh, yes, north? They come down. They come down. Always come down. Even then they said that. So Maxine, you know the reason why. Why do we come down from Jerusalem? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and because it's all it's always spiritual. Whenever someone in the Bible is going down, like what is that? You know, he goes down to Jericho. He goes down to get a wife from the Philistines. That's uh, Samson. It always ends poorly. Okay? So you never have the phrase, he went down to, to Elat, found a copper mine and made lots of money. Okay? Nothing, nothing's ever positive about going down. Right? It's a, and that's usually because uh, the Hebrew is also trying to also tell you something physical, but is also trying to tell you something spiritual. Is that there is a yes, you're turning your back on the Lord, there is a spiritual descent, you're leaving God's presence, this can't possibly be good for you. Um, best thing to do is turn around and go back up. And, and then 
other times in the text, particularly in the book of Judges, when it says they go up, they, it usually means that their community is doing something good. They are uh, keeping the Lord, and you find that they they kick off the uh, the yoke of whatever government was oppressing them at the time, and they and they and they do do well. Although, also remember in the book of Judges, a good judge usually gets one paragraph, and a bad judge usually gets four chapters. Okay, so um, you know everyone really likes it to tell you the bad story, but when you get so and so was a judge, and it was wonderful, and he ruled for thirty years. That's it, <laughs> okay? Uh, but, uh, but the bad guy shows up and it's always usually a horrible, well-detailed uh, crime uh, of what he did. So here, uh, Antioch has actually been a mixture of Jews and Gentiles for some time now, okay, since Acts 11. They've already sent uh, uh, Barnabas there. So Jerusalem has already had involvement with the church in Antioch for now several years. Uh, and uh, but for some some reason something's changed that now spurs this group of people uh, who are unnamed. Uh, doesn't say who they are. Um, who do you, what what's changed in our little environment in the last chapter? Yeah, more guys. Yep. That's uh, and who's doing this mess? Yeah, Antioch, right? Jerusalem's not sending out the missionaries. It's Antioch, right? When, when once we go across the pond over here, like ten meters into the Orthodox world, their favorite city is Antioch, right? Because that's where they—that's where the pioneers went out. That's where the gospel goes forth. Jerusalem, yes, very important, but uh, Antioch was the big, big uh, mission base. Okay, that's where Jews and Gentiles got together initially, and that's where the Holy Spirit was speaking, and that's where the Holy Spirit started sending out, sending out people. Uh, Jerusalem. Uh, what happens to Jerusalem? It gets destroyed. So it doesn't do very well, right? It gets destroyed. Believers are scattered. That doesn't happen to Antioch. And so you can see why the ancient Christian world really prided thought Antioch and Alexandra, by the way, were really good. Who's the um, apostle who ends up going to, or by tradition, goes to Egypt? Thomas. No, that's uh, Thomas. He goes, oh, to, he, goes, he goes to Antioch. Yes, the tradition is Thomas is in Antioch in the year 52. Okay, a couple of years after this. Okay, he ends up there on his way to India. Okay. Um, who's, the, who's the hero? Anyone know? Mark. I don't know why they think that, but they do. Okay, I don't know where their proof text is. I haven't read the Egyptian Bible, but it'd be kind of fun um, to read their version of uh, sacred history to see why they think uh, Mark was their hero. And uh, he set up a base in Alexandria. And uh, that became a shining uh, beacon of Christianity and, and, uh, and theology for a very long time. Okay, um, all right. So we don't know uh, who these people are. They're not named. But they've obviously heard of all this uh, missionary stuff coming out of Antioch. So we need to go deal with it. So they're off. So they go down. And, and, and we now get this tension between Torah, Gentiles, and salvation. Also note in this environment, what is the relationship in the Second Temple period, in this time, between the Jewish community and Gentiles already? 
They already have God-fearers. They already have proselytes. What's the big problem here? Every time we go to a synagogue, half the congregation is Gentile. Something's really got Jerusalem annoyed. Doesn't actually say. Okay? But they've, they've, already having, they've already got a tension between Gentiles, God-fearers, proselytes, Jews, because that scenario is already alive and well in the Jewish world. But something has um, happened that requires these, these people in Jerusalem to think that they need to get a grip on, uh, on the, the Messianic movement. Okay? Um, and so uh, the, they, they come down. Now, in relation to the Torah and Gentiles and Jewish relationship to the Torah and vis-a-vis -vis Gentiles, what does the Torah tell us about Gentiles? What should we do as, as, as Jews? Not assimilate. Not Correct. Yes, we're told. So yeah, so don't don't marry them. Don't take their gods. Don't eat their food. Don't you know? There's a there's a the, the Torah already has things, uh, very strict rules to stop you from assimilating. Now all of a sudden we've got a group of people saying, "Welcome, brothers." It's a shock. And so you have some very devout believers who love the Torah, love Jesus, love God, know that all their life they have to be very careful with the Gentiles, and now they're afraid. You know, what is going to happen? You know, my son is going to marry one of these goys. Boy, <laughs> Guess what's happening in our current day? You can see it, can't you? Okay, this same issue is here. It's alive and well. Nearly every Jewish believer that I'm familiar with has all married Gentiles. Okay. It's, um, there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, uh, some of them quite good ones. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it is an issue. Okay, And let's all remember, everyone's a believer. Okay, so who comes down and where do they come from? Any guesses? Let's read Galatians 2. Yeah, Galatians 2. Uh, let's do the first 10 verses. I think that's when. Oh, actually, no, we can go all the way to 13. Okay, so I'll read. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This is a sort of, this is actually Paul's only little piece of biography. Okay, when he writes his epistles, he doesn't give much details about himself at all. Just in Galatians, is that you get a little bit of detail about him. So he goes to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. 
As for those who seem to be important, whatever uh, they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearances. These men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, has also worked in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Pete, James, Peter, and John, whose, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So do you, know, do you know the scenario he's talking about in here? This is Acts 11. Okay, now, here's another bit. When Peter came to Antioch, when did Peter go to Antioch? We have no idea. But apparently he did so sometime between Peter, so Paul and Barnabas, going on their first little missionary journey and then coming back, remember the text just says they remained there for a long time, sometime between then, Peter showed up in Antioch. We have no idea what Peter has been doing. Why? Because he disappeared from Acts 12. He just stopped. You never hear about him again. Apparently, according to the Corinthians, he showed up in Corinthians, in Corinth, in, in 1 Corinthians 9. He's, he's there. So he's, he's around. He's journeying around. So Peter comes to Antioch. I oppose him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Who are the other Jews? So they, by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Ooh. So even our vaunted friend Barnabas goes back to uh, separation. Okay. So who are the certain men? The men come down in Acts 15 verse 1. Some men come down from Judea to Antioch. Who does, Gal who does Galatians say they're from? Yes, but Galatians says they're from? James. Right? Acts doesn't. Galatians does. Right? Um, who's James? Okay, brother of the Lord. Okay, maybe not biological. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, he's the older brother, not the younger one. Okay. Um, he's a bit of a hero. Eusebius. Uh, book 2 says James the brother of the Lord calls him the brother of the Lord here okay. uh, succeeded even though he himself in his own epistle doesn't succeeded to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles okay, it doesn't say how he became the boss okay, you've got 12 apostles but when it's time to actually choose a leader James is it okay. even though Peter was at the beginning right? what was the big event that kind of cast doubt on Peter's leadership Ananias and Sapphira. Every time someone walked into a room with Peter, they dropped down dead. Okay? So suddenly, after Acts chapter 5, Peter's no longer the boss. He's like, this is really bad, man. You've got poor leadership ability. Okay? Your, your human resources are not good because the human is dying. So it's a small problem. But anyway, James suddenly becomes the leader. 
Because when Peter is actually released from prison in Acts 12, he says, go tell James. Okay, for whatever reason, he seems to have this, this, this affinity for making sure that, that James knows what's going on. He has been called the just by all from the time of the Savior to the present day. For there were many that bore the name James. So James the just is his name. Okay, he was holy from his mother's womb. Guess who they don't name as the mother? Mm. And he drank no wine, nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil and didn't use the bath. Okay. This is a Eusebius, History of the Church. He alone was permitted to enter the holy place. He got very close to the holy place. For he wore not woolen, but linen garments. Okay? So he, didn't, he, he even kept sharpness. This guy kept Torah like you wouldn't believe. Okay? He never mixed his wool and his linens. Okay? He was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found on his knees begging forgiveness for the people. Okay? Cold camel knees. Cold, so his knees became hard like those of a camel. In, consequ in consequence of his constantly bending down, down in worship of God and asking forgiveness of the people. Because of his exceeding great justice, he was called the just and oblius, which signifies in Greek, bulwark of the people and justice with what the prophets declare concerning him. So, this is an incredibly good uh, depiction of our hero. Yet, what do we find in Galatians and in Acts? Our hero, some men from James, come down and start telling us that, you know, you've got to be, uh, got to circumcise. So, interesting. It could be that Paul is wrong. They might not be from James. He might just think that they are. And so when he writes, he writes something that might actually be incorrect. But if he is correct... It's interesting that James, as the leader of the community, who has already made a declaration in Acts 11, has somehow changed his mind. Okay. Which is also possible, because we, do, we always change our minds. We do, don't we? I'm sure none of us here are thinking the same way we did 10 years ago. Well, things happen. Okay. Um, and, just, and our heroes could do the same thing, because they're also human. But we, did, we have a description by Eusebius, which could be overblown. Okay? It could be just saying super, super, super nice things that may be a little too nice. Okay? Particularly because the, straight after this verse, we're going to kill him. <laughs> so you want to describe him in a really positive light before we execute the poor guy. Um, but then again, Paul could also have been misinformed when people came to him uh, saying that we're from James. That could actually be, they could have been lying to, to. We don't know, okay? But Galatians implies the circumcision group is headed by James. Interesting. Acts does not. So, we have no idea um, uh, what's going on here. So, some men come down, they start teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So, what's, what's some of the issues with that sentence alone? Think about the context of the Second Temple period. Who's in a synagogue when we walk into it? 
Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are not circumcised. Right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be Gentiles anymore. So we know that there's God-fearers. In fact, many times, God-fearers are talked about in a very positive light. All of a sudden, you've got a group who's saying, they're not even saved. Ooh. There's a difference, though, surely, between the God-fearers and those they are. Correct. So it could be that they're, they're not actually talking about God-fearers here. No. Right. Which means they're not just talking about... Because God-fearers do limited Torah observance. Yeah. Right? So here we're talking about a straight-out pagan right? who has somehow come to faith, who knows nothing of the Torah. And, uh, and, and so the, the idea for circumcision is so important for Jewish people, particularly if you love God, because the, what, what do you have to do on Shabbat if it falls on the eighth day? Circumcise. Which means the Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision, trumps even the Sabbath. Right? Okay? If, even if the Sabbath falls, no, you have to work, you have to uh, do a circumcision. And that's work. That involves cutting and sewing and all that stuff. Okay? That's, uh, but it trumps Shabbat. So circumcision is the big deal. However, just getting circumcised, does that mean you're saved? Right. Because there are lots of Jews in the Bible who definitely were circumcised, they turned out to be complete, absolute morons. Right? They were idol worshippers, they were evil, they killed their brothers and sisters, they, yes, they did all kinds of nasty things, right? Even Solomon, who was circumcised, ended up an idol worshipper. Right? So, just because you are circumcised means one thing. You are circumcised. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean you will inherently Therefore, keep the Torah. Okay? It is a sign. But that is all. Which also, therefore, means, what does baptism do? It's very powerful. It's very important. But it itself doesn't save you. Because lots of people who are baptized wandered away from the faith. So we have to be very careful when... It's important. Very important. Especially when Jesus says you have to do it. But remember, God also told them to, to circumcise. So, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated issue. It's not as clear-cut as everybody would just love to make it out to be. Okay. So, okay. I want to draw attention to a word in, uh, in the first verse. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers... This is the first time that the word brothers now includes Gentiles. Up until this point, all through the Gospels and also through Acts, the word Adelphu, the word brethren, brothers, has only been used for, for Jews. So this, is the, this, this marks, again, another one of those pivotal changes where the, the writer is saying, no, they're your brothers. Right? They're, they're the same as you. And not only that, I'm going to call them that. And uh, so it's, it's a, a lot, sometimes it's, it's missed, 
But um, Claire Farn did a fantastic MA thesis on this, if anybody ever wants to read it, okay, where, she, where she notes the pivotal change in, in this term and how, how big a deal that is in, uh, in Jewish-Gentile relations. Okay? Because if you're brethren and brothers, you can eat together. You can also marry. Okay. So these, these people who are called brothers, these Gentiles, have no Bible, have no Torah, have no sacred tradition. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to impose a tradition on them. And, um, and what happens? So, verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute. Okay? So what have Paul and Barnabas just spent the last year doing? Okay, preaching the gospel. So they've actually seen G Gentiles come to faith. What's occurred in their ministry? What has actually happened physically with them? They've seen miracles. They've done miracles. Right? So think about where that puts you in, in, in your I'm right category. <laughs> okay? I mean, Paul has looked at a man and said, get up. And he does. He's like, wow, cool, thank you, buddy. That's, uh, I must be doing the right thing. Right? And now, some, some of his own brothers and sisters have come down from Jerusalem. There's a very good chance Paul knows these people, has might have even studied with them. Okay? And, uh, and they're having a discussion. So Paul and Barnabas are in a very unique position to argue this. Because they've been doing it. They've been... They've encountered the Gentiles. They're the ones who preach the gospel. They've been ministering a mixed community. So they're the ones that debate vigorously in, uh, in, in the synagogue. And it's an open debate, which is very typical of the day. Okay? Um, and so we're not sure where they're doing this. It could be in their current synagogue, meeting hall, whatever they have created. But it's, it's public. And everybody's probably watching. Okay? And uh, letting them go for it. All right. So, <clears throat> all right. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, okay, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So a whole bunch of people are not named there, but we get a few hints. So Paul and Barnabas are definitely involved, and some other people. So who were some of the other people? Yeah, we, we know some of them because we just read it in Galatians. Who are they? One of them's Titus, and the other one is Peter. Right? Peter's in Antioch. Yep. The, the guys from James have come down, they've had a discussion, and uh, Paul's challenged Peter and Barnabas and everybody else, and they've gone, oh, oh yeah, you, you're right. We've had the big debate, and then the community has said, well, we really should go to Jerusalem and get this sorted out. Okay, so we shall appoint some people, uh, you, you, and you. And of course, well, why not Peter? He's an apostle. Who are we going to go and see in Jerusalem? The apostles. Who are they? Who are the apostles? Jesus' disciples. Okay, we're not talking about brand new people here. We're talking about Nathaniel and Andrew. Okay? We're talking about uh, you know, all the, 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 the guys that Jesus was with. Matthew. 
and, uh, and, and, and so obviously Peter was one of them. So he's a really good choice to go. Right? So, so we're gonna, he's going to go, plus, plus who's Titus? Titus is Greek. So not only are we going to send some Jews, I'll send some Gentiles as well. Better, better, better send them up as well. So where they can show that uh, even, the, even the Gentiles are now believers in, in, in Yeshua as well. So we have Paul and Barnabas, we have uh, unnamed believers, uh, other disciples, some of them whom we know from, from Paul's personal reflection on the story in Galatians. Like here we're getting Luke's reflection, right? Galatians is Paul's version of the events. And, um, and within, he names a few more people. Okay, Luke, if you're, if you're reading um, Western text, okay, the Syrian text, Luke's with them too. Okay, Lucius, who, who is Jewish. But, uh, and they go to see the apostles, who are our disciples of Jesus, and the elders, whoever they are. Yeah, James is one of them. But we don't know who the elders are. Just another group of people who have now become part of the upper echelon. And we don't know why. But it is interesting that um, we don't... The, the, the apostles remain largely unnamed. Other people have traditions as to which apostle came to them. But at the moment, uh, they're, they're still there. It's not, not one person they go to, it's always a group. It's a group. Yeah. So if the, if the year is uh, 48, which is people usually reflect that this is the year, and if, if uh, Thomas is in Antioch in the year 52, he's here as well. Um, yeah, so they're, they're all, there's a lot of them that are there. A lot of our big heroes actually are still in Jerusalem. Uh, verse three. Okay. Yes. So, uh, Jim, your your comment on let's go to a group, but let's also go to is 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 a true reflection of the idea of it's got to be a group decision, and the best group decision is the one from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem still at this point has the the high moral ground. Okay. The the word goes forth from Zion. So at the end of the day, we've got to go back there, even though. What has Paul done physically? He's physically done miracles. And despite the fact that he's physically done miracles, Jerusalem is still more important. Okay? Which um, today, people will do a miracle and they'll think that basically they're the most favored of God. And uh, you know, pretty much start their own religion. Um, whereas that's not what you see from the book of Acts. Okay. Um, so the church sent them on their way. Okay, the community again sends them out. Okay, uh, as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they are told how the Gentiles have been converted, and this news made all the brothers very glad. Woohoo! Right. Um, what's not mentioned in the text? Remember, what's not mentioned is sometimes just as important as what is. Okay. What happened the first time Paul and Barnabas go out? There's a word from the Holy Spirit. There's a commissioning service. This time, there's none of that. Holy Spirit has not spoken. Okay, there, uh, there is no commissioning service. There's just a, they're sent. In fact, the Greek tends to imply that they journeyed with them like a little way. 
no, the community decided like, we'll walk you to the front door and, uh, and then wave, okay? As opposed to uh, where the Greek begins to say, there's a laying on of hands and a sort of a commissioning service. This one, it looks more like a, uh, they take them to the edge of town and literally wave. Good luck, have fun storming the castle, and off they go. This is they went from Mysia and Samaria. Would they have gone through Samaria? Like, That's right. Yeah, it's an interesting little thing that they've done, right? Yeah. So what, what path have they taken? What's the path that you would most expect them to take? Yeah. Nowhere near Sorry, Samaria. coming from the north, you would take the? the coast. You take the coast. Yeah. What, what's, that, what's, that, what's the route called? Way of the sea. Way of the sea, the Viamaris. Okay. But they do, what they said, they take the other version. There are two, there are two versions of this. Okay. They take the one that goes through Phoenicia. Who lives in Phoenicia? <laughs> Phoenicians. <laughs> okay. um, which are Greeks, uh, sea peoples. And then they go through Samaria, which is always a hotbed of activity. Uh, even though in the, in the previous uh, chapters of, of Acts, there are some Samaritan towns that have actually received the gospel. So they may have kept in dialogue with them. It they may be strange. very. Strange. It's always taboo yeah. to go through to Samaria in yeah, most of the gospels. In most of the gospels, it was taboo. But at this stage, you've got believers. So it could be that they went to those places, and as they're going, they're uh, letting people know, "Hey, you know, you half Jews, you're not alone anymore. Now I've got complete non-Jews, you know, in the team. And here's a couple of them, right? Uh, and so it's interesting that that's the what happens. And again the use of the word brothers, which now is including Samar Samaritans. Ooh. Okay. Now that one for a bit of a turn up. Okay. Uh, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So they come and they get a, a good reception. Uh, everybody knows the reason why they're coming. We can assume that the people who originally went to Antioch are also with them, or went on ahead, or lagged behind, or something, but they probably didn't stay in Antioch to cause trouble. So there's probably everybody's there. These guys could have been debated at the Brass Rose for the three weeks that it took to get to Jerusalem, right? We don't know. Um, it could be that by this stage, Paul has persuaded all of them. <laughs> We don't know, yeah, we don't know. But Peter's there too, okay. Then some of the believers, which is, this is that interesting phrase, Jim, that you, you mentioned, and yeah, I kind of noticed it almost for the first time. Uh, uh, I find a question, what is, what is the, the, in Greek, the word for church? Uh, ecclesia. 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 Yeah. So Kehila in Hebrew. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, you, you can dispute the, Translation of this word. Uh, ecclesia is more assembly. Assembly. Yeah, but it's the, also the word that we end up becoming church. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, it's a. It's perhaps the best use should have been uh, assembly. Okay. Uh, especially in context. Yeah. Right. The context is the the group of believers, the assembly. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because what what is the what is the uh, word for synagogue in Hebrew? Beit Knesset. Which means what? Yeah. Gathering house. <laughs> yeah, how's that for a real description of something holy? Yeah. What do you do there? Oh, we gather. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> right, um, yeah. So, 
when some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so this group has maintained a distinct nomenclature name within their group of believers. Okay, so they get the first shot of uh, of talking. So they stood up and said, right? now why is that important? They wanted to get their smoking first. Yeah. So when you when you you gather in a group in a community, what's the first thing you would do? Sit down. Everyone been to a synagogue? Okay, where are all the benches? Okay, so everyone sits down and they'll wait. And so the first people to speak, what will they actually have to physically do? Stand up. Okay, so Acts is just reflecting a historical. Yeah, they stood up. He's reflecting a, a, a historical uh, normality. So the first people to speak are the, the Pharisaical party, the group that's advocating circumcision. So they stand up and they make their declaration, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to wear the law of Moses. Okay, that's, our, that's what we think. Now, remember, they're believers. They are jealous of the Torah. They are doing their best to honor the Lord. They are not evil people. Okay, they are, they, they really, they've got a tradition of making sure that they don't assimilate. Okay, they've got lots of them. Okay, and uh, and so and some of them are uh, apostles. It's a part of the covenant of God, though, because they be circumcised. It's yeah. a part of the covenant. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For Jewish people, yep, yeah, it's a it's a big deal. Now you might not. We don't know the names of some of these people, but what are the names of some of the Pharisees that become believers in Jesus? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Gamliel, we're not sure what happens to him. We know his granddaughter's a believer. Okay. Because she's paying for everything. Um, and we know that, uh, according to tradition, Gamliel has buried Stephen in his own personal tomb. Right? Yeah. So if you go, you can, when you go and visit Gamliel's tomb, you will also got a little sign saying the, the burial place of Stephen. Somewhere I read today. Some church over in Hungary or somewhere, they've got the, uh, a hand of Stephen. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not that one. No, I, uh, we, when, we, when we chopped off in Acts 12, we chopped off James's head. Oh, yeah. So his head's buried there and his body ended up in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah, you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a time when they were bones. Yeah. And we had more bones than we actually had apostles. Yeah. yeah. So, which is awesome. Okay. The multiplication of the craniums and femurs. Okay. It's a little known miracle of Jesus. All right. So they, they have their opportunity to speak. And, uh, and, and I'm sure it came with arguments. I'm sure this wasn't the only thing that they, they said. They, they probably could could appeal to their credentials. Some of them could have said, look, I'm a Pharisee. I came to faith in Jesus. I was hiding up a sycamore tree. Look at me now. Everybody needs to get circumcised. Okay, you got, like, who, who knows who these are? But they could have been some of these guys. Then, quite a collection of people here. Yes, there's a big, big group of people. They're talking when they say about the um, apostles and elders doing their reported and they work with them. And okay. they're sort of talking about the Pharisees. All believers, and they're all coming from different angles. Yes, they are. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All, 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 all. Room full of believers and no one thinks the same. Not 
Not unusual to change. <laughs> no, no change. No, the more, no, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Nothing's, no, nothing is new under the sun. The apostles and the elders, okay, uh, met to consider this question. Um, now, why would they be having to do this? Think about who the apostles are. These are guys who have journeyed with Jesus for at least three and a half years, maybe even seven. And um, why does it take these guys who have journeyed with Jesus for so long, so long, to come up with a conclusion? Isn't that interesting? Jesus has taught these people. You would have thought somewhere along the line, Yeshua would have said, now, Gentiles, they're not so bad. <laughs> okay, yeah. But obviously he didn't. Or they missed that one. Okay? You know, we're going to talk about Gentiles today. La, 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 la. Okay. We don't know. Okay? Uh, or they did listen to the Messiah, but then they got persuaded by other people. That's also possible. Okay? Which happens, happens to people all the time. Okay? And, um, uh, and, and let, notice how many, how many of this community are full of the Holy Spirit. Let's go all of them. Okay? And who's not talking in this, in this chapter so far? the Holy Spirit. So we all have to be incredibly careful when, uh, when people say, I have the Holy Spirit, so therefore I now know all truth. <clears throat> okay, that is a warning sign to anybody. Although, I have to admit, we have met people here in this city that, that say that. Okay? They come to Jerusalem and, uh, and they'll tell you that uh, they're full of the Spirit. And because it says in the text, somewhere in the Bible, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. I think that's what Jesus says to the, to the people. Uh, they believe that now they know all truth. Yet we seem to have proof that um, just because you are full of the Holy Spirit certainly does not mean you are infallible. And, uh, yes, he reveals. But at the, for some reason, the Holy Spirit has not done any revealing. Now, at, when someone like me, who uh, would like to keep things simple, stupid, um, you would think, okay, Lord, you've got them all in one room, and they're really focused on this topic right now. I mean, you've got their attention. Speaks. Your servants are listening, okay? At which point does... Because the Spirit's done, done this, has He not? The Spirit spoke in Acts, uh, Acts 13. And said, send me Paul and Barnabas. And the community said, yes, boss, we'll do it. Why does he not do the same here? We have no idea. We don't know why sometimes the Spirit speaks. And we don't know why sometimes he doesn't. And he waits and lets humans come up with the decision. But that's what we get. We have to just admit it. And so when we have meetings... And discussions in our ministries and in our mission societies and our church groups um, and we discuss we come up with a plan and we pray that it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. although the Holy Spirit not getting any mention until then okay. so here we have the apostles and the elders meet to discuss the question and you got to ask that question what is taking you so long you have discussed this already in Acts 11 um, but Whatever arguments this other group have come up with, it's become quite persuasive. So, <clears throat> who needs to talk? Who needs to sway the argument? Apostles and elders. Who's going to be the one to stand up and talk? An apostle. 
it's going to be Peter. Yeah. It's not going to be Paul, it's not going to be Barnabas. Okay, it's going to be one of the original 12. Because he's, he's standing amongst a lot of his brothers and sisters. I mean, James is dead. So we've got, we're down to 11. Um, and maybe a few of them have shot off to uh, Egypt and various places. So we're not sure what kind of numbers we're looking here. But No, James the just. Uh, sorry, James the, the, uh, the brother, the younger, the brother of John. Yeah. Um, and, and guess who's not mentioned in all this? Mary. Right? Mary's disappeared. When did she disappear? She disappeared in chapter 3, I think. Yeah, I think I think she has like one little little no um, that that's the Western tradition. I mean, there's a little bit of uh, uh, where do the where do the Greeks where do the Byzantines say she's kept? Here, underneath what we call the um, uh, uh, upper room, which is a crusader structure and uh, Mamluk structure. Okay, underneath that is the tomb of David which is actually the tomb of a 12th century crusader knight. So we're really glad that the Orthodox are guarding him, because I'm sure he's really happy about it. But underneath that, okay, is a Byzantine church to Mary. And, um, and so the, the most, most likely scenario is that Mary is here, because her tomb is at the base of the Mount of Olives. So all the Orthodox have her here. The reason why we... The reason why we in the West think that um, that Mary's in Ephesus is because of who? John. However, um, in uh, on the cross, okay, he turns to the disciple whom he loves, which in uh, in the Gospel of John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved? Lazarus. Yep. John 11, it mentions the disciple whom you love is dead, and it's Lazarus. In fact, the, the only disciple who's ever called the disciple whom Jesus loved is Lazarus. And uh, yes, so, because remember, in the Greek tradition, uh, Jesus is the younger brother. So all the, other disciple, all the other brothers of Jesus are older, and they're from another woman. So when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying, he doesn't turn to his mother and say, Dear mom, I'm about to die, but that's okay, you've got about ten other kids, and so they'll all take care of you when actually none of them are actually her children at all. So no one's going to take care of her. So Jesus makes sure that a disciple will take care of her. And uh, who's got a house? Lazarus got a house. Okay. Got a bunch of sisters. They know Jesus very well. They know Mary very well. So, very, yep. Yeah. And so when Jesus does rise from the dead, one of the first people he does go and see is, of course, James. And you can imagine that conversation, right? Because the, the brothers, none of the brothers of Jesus believe that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So all of her life, she has been ridiculed, not just by foreigners and strangers, but by her own, own um, family, who said, well, you know, you, my, my stepmom, she's just, uh, you know, uh, a bit of a prostitute. Yes. Could you imagine that conversation? Jesus comes up and says, you haven't been very nice to mom. And uh, they're all going, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, yes, so they all took care of her. And so they, they, according to tradition, they took care of her over there. And that's the reason why the Dormition Abbey is built there. Because that part of the mountain becomes synonymous with Mary. And, uh, and you can see it in the buildings and you can see it in the stories. So um, as, mu as much as Ephesus is a nice place, um, I think it's famous for other stuff as opposed to, to Mary. 
my opinion. And I could be very, very wrong. Okay. Just so everybody knows. Even though I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And I'll say that, yeah. So, okay, so here we have um, elders and apostles. And so you need an apostle to stand up. Peter does his thing. Now, he may have already had his little rebuke time in Galatians. So he's ready to say his spiel. And he does well. Okay? He stands up. Brothers. And here he could even be looking at his fellow, fellow early disciples. Okay? You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So what's important about that opening sentence? Yes, choice. God chose me. Right? So he begins the spiel by using prophetic redemptive history. Right? Which is a very Jewish thing to do when you're wanting to tell how God is working. God has made a choice. God is doing this. It's got nothing to do with you. Oh, and by the way, he didn't use you, so be careful, chaps. He's used me to go and talk to Gentiles. I don't even like them, right? Um, and, uh, and here I, and, and, and I, but I did it. Right? And uh, so this is part of the prophetic plan, part of redemptive history. This is actually happening. And, uh, and I'm going to give them the message of the gospel, which is what? What's the gospel in one sentence? Messiah rose from the dead. Right? And they've believed. God, who knows the heart, all right, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Ooh, so we actually finally get a mention of the Holy Spirit. And it's in relation to a gift to Gentiles, which he also gave to us. So God knows the heart. So it's always actually been about a heart, heart issue, right? Write these laws where? On your heart. Circumcise your Take out your hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. Okay? The heart controls, according to Jewish tradition, not the mind. The heart controls whether your evil inclination or your good inclination. The heart's going to dictate whether you're going to do something evil or you're going to do something good. Okay? So the heart is the thing you've got to guard. Guard your hearts. And, uh, and so what does God check if he wants to see how you're doing? He looks at your heart. Okay? And... Um, and so God saw their hearts. He saw their hearts. He saw that they were, were, were inclined to good now. So he gave them his Holy Spirit to seal and guard them. Just like he did with, the, uh, with the, the Jewish people on Pentecost. And in both of those instances, in Acts 10 and Acts 2, you get speaking in tongues. In no other place where the Holy Spirit comes do you get speaking in tongues. But you do there. So, the, the speaking in tongues is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. It is not the sign. Having the Holy Spirit is the sign that you have acceptance from God. Does that help? So, if you don't speak in tongues, well, that's okay. But you have the Holy Spirit, and that, brothers and sisters, is the sign that you are accepted of God. And boy, that's good news. Okay. So here, Peter has said some amazing things to them. Right? He's placed this whole event 
in the realms of prophetic sacred history. And he has said, and, you can, and this is proven by the fact that God has looked at their hearts, as we all know that he does. He's given them the Holy Spirit so they are accepted, just like us. And he has made no distinction between us and them, for he has purified their hearts, right, okay, by faith or faithfulness, his faithfulness in the gift giving of the Holy Spirit. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Is he saying there, Jews shouldn't keep Torah? That's correct. He's not saying that. What he is saying is the time-honored debate, do Gentiles have to keep Torah? That was already alive and well hundreds of years prior to Jesus. They were already having these discussions when, when every time they walked into a synagogue, half the, the darn place is full of Gentiles anyway. Trying to figure out which one should they do, what should they do. They're having this debate. And so Peter has already come up saying, look, why, what are you trying to do giving it to them? Right? It's, not, it was, it's never, it's never, it's never, it's not the issue. We believe it is through grace, okay, chesed, God's loving kindness, of, that, of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are he never once says now we don't have to keep Torah because it's got nothing to do with getting saved right it, it, it's the thing uh, the Torah never once saved you it's still just the teachings and instructions of God and he's also not saying none of the Gentiles don't have to keep Torah that's also not what he's not saying He's not saying that, okay, you know, um, Torah, we won't get any Gentiles to do it, any part of the Torah. He's not saying that. He's just saying, don't force it on them as a burden. Okay? We ourselves can't even bear it. Okay? We're always making mistakes. And Jewish people knew because they believed that every single verse of the, every single command of the Torah was linked to every other one, which meant that if you broke one, you broke everything. Which is the reason why they were constantly shrinking the Torah down into, its, in, into uh, two or three sentences. What does the Lord God require of you, O man? To act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Right? And, uh, and, 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 and those kinds of ideas. Right? Um, yeah. So in the face of this brilliant little speech, okay, it doesn't say that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It doesn't say how he managed to become so eloquent, but it is a very Jewish, very Jewish speech, because he's, he's, he's doing sacred history. The whole assembly becomes silent. Okay? Now it's time for Paul and Barnabas to speak, and they listen quietly as we hear stories, one after the other, of all these wonderful things we've done amongst the Gentiles. Okay, and about the miraculous signs and wonders, this is verse 12, that God had done among the Gentiles through them. So they've had a great speech. They've now had Paul and Barnabas uh, have their go. And when they finished, James spoke up. So now James has already done this in Acts 11. Now does it again. Brothers, listen to me. Now he uses here Simon. He uses the, the Hebrew name of uh, Peter and Peter ends up having quite a few he's in Aramaic what's his name Kepha okay and, and, and many passages will will, will call him Cephas okay? Kepha but uh, he's got a chunk of names this guy but here we use his Hebrew one 
So Shimon has described to us how God at first showed this concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. And he uses a proof text, right? which anybody could have brought. But in this case, it is recorded that it is brought through uh, James. And his proof text is from the prophet Amos. The words of the prophets are in agreement. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. What is David's fallen tent? It's not the tabernacle. That tabernacle was taken down and dismantled. What, and yeah, David built a tabernacle. So there's the original tabernacle, which was in Shiloh. And then when the ark goes away and gets lost, and they bring it back, it doesn't make it all the way to Jerusalem. It only makes it into as far as um, Kiryat uh, Yarim. And then uh, later on, it's brought into a special tent that David had created. And so it's interesting that this middle bit, this middle one, is the one the prophets say, let's rebuild that. They don't say rebuild the, the, the tabernacle in Shiloh. They don't say rebuild the temple. They say rebuild the thing that David made. Which, you it's know? Literally what you reckon, Sorry? David's little tent he built in his backyard. Well, he built it on top of... Um, the, uh, the, the har, Harabite. He did it on, on the threshing floor. It's in here in Jerusalem. So before, because David wasn't allowed to build a, 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 a temple. So what he did is he bought the threshing floor. He bought the property and put a tent on it. Put the ark inside. Where does that come from? He built it there. Yeah, Harabite. It's in, the, it's in um, Samuel. And then he stands. Oh, I know he did it, but where he, put, where he built his tent, though, when, when the ark came. Oh, I'm not 100% sure, but I can't imagine him putting it in his backyard because his backyard's a palace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but doesn't say it all Yeah, yeah. Can some so, of these words be lost in the translation? No, we say a tent. It's all hell. It's tent. But are we talking about a physical tent? Yeah, it's a physical tent. David's fallen tent. Um, the tent that he, he put the up. Was there was no temple. Are these days after that have been destroyed? Are we talking about AD 70? No, 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 no. King, King David's is way before, it's, this is a thousand years before the no, temple. No, no, no. When this a thousand years this before is a Jesus. Pro prophetic word here. The words of prophet. Who, yes, who, who wrote that? Who Amos. Amos. Okay. Yes. So he's was talking about something that would happen. That's from the past. He's talking about, he's talking about something future. But he's talking about an, an, an element in the past. So David's, David's tent is very special in the effect that what, what could you do in it? Yes! There was no parochet. In fact, you literally sat in the presence of the Lord and worshipped him. Right? And not only that, David didn't do it by himself. He got these musicians, which he trained up. Which he, and he said, okay, you guys train all year. But for two weeks of the, of the year, you will come before the Lord and worship Him continually. 24 hours a day. Yep. And so you had these people train all year for two weeks before the Lord. And then when they finished their shift, another two people. So the Lord always had the best musicians, the best sound. People could come in and join in worship and just worship the Lord uh, to good music. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to say that one out loud. <laughs> and, um, but you know what I mean? And then the prophets say, if you want to rebuild something that actually honors the Lord, do that one. Yeah. You know, come, come and stand right in front of God. Come worship Him to the best of your ability. And we're looking at a physical tent. 
Oh, no, 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 no. He, he, the, the prophet is using a physical object to talk about a spiritual truth. And in this case, what's very interesting is the prophet then added, and I guess it's a part of the prophecy that a lot of people miss, is that the, they, who's going to seek the Lord? The Gentiles. Who already bear his name. So that was a prophetic one. Right? That's a, it's an interesting little piece of prophecy. Okay? Which uh, doesn't go away. All right. Well, we didn't quite finish, but we'll wrap it up uh, there. Okay, guys? All right. Because the next section needs a discussion on um, the laws we do give Gentiles. So even though we've just said they don't have to do anything, they do. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and it ends up being a really big issue because Peter's going to spend three chapters in Corinthians talking about it. Right? Right, so when you get to Corinthians, out of the 16 chapters, three of them are dedicated to food idols. Right? So that's a really big deal. Okay, alright guys, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.